from the book of Genesis. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and happy Father's Day. I'd like to commend all the fathers who choose to bring their families to church because this is our what? Our cultural high holy day of golf and fishing, right? Is that a fair way to think of Father's Day? Uh, you know, and, but, and I like to start off Father's Day sermons by emphasizing this point of the importance of fathers leading their families in faith with kind of a few statistics that I throw out each year. Uh, there's going to be a quiz, as always, in the back of your bulletin, and so be, you know, be ready. So if in a household, a child is the first person to come to faith in the household, there's a 3.5% chance that the whole family will become Christians. If a mother is the first person in the household to come to faith, there's a 17% chance that all members of the household become Christians. If a father is the first person in the household to come to faith, there's a 93% chance that all members of that house will become Christians. Here's another one for you. If a father does not attend church at all, regardless of the mother's attendance, she could be coming faithfully every single week. There's only a 2% chance that the kids will be regular church attenders. If a father attends regularly, regardless of how often the mother attends church, there is a two-thirds to three-quarters chance that the, fam- that the kids will become regular church attenders. It's pretty significant. Now, I'm not saying, saying that to... Um, you know, to make, to devalue mothers, right? The Lord knows the power of a praying mother. And, and um, you know, I know that in parts of my family, I know that in, you know, St. Augustine, for example, St. Monica praying for him, like praying mothers can do astounding things through the Lord. But I do share that with you to emphasize how important the father's role is in leading his family to the Lord and leading them in faith. You know, there are so many wonderful fathers out there who spend so much time preparing their kids for life preparing them through t-ball and preparing them through dance and, you know, trying to get them ready to stand on their own two feet, and that's such a commendable and worthwhile and worthy endeavor. But I would say it's even more important to prepare our children to see the Lord, to face the Lord, and to encounter Him. Because as we're going to see in our text today, there's something momentous that happens when God comes to visit, when we encounter God. And it's the sort of thing that absolutely changes the trajectory of people's lives. And we'll see that in our text for this morning. Now, our text in Genesis is actually part one of a two-parter. And you see this sometimes in the Bible, right? You take two stories, and you put them right next to each other. You juxtapose them to make a significant point. And part one of this is the story that we just read. God and his emissaries visit Abraham. And in Genesis 19, the very next chapter, they visit Sodom. Two very different receptions with two very different results. Now, I'm sure I don't have to explain this, right? But when God visits, that's kind of a big deal. Could we agree with that? Like, that's, you know, that's something that's a little bit important. And we see in Scripture, actually, it's a life-altering, destiny-shaping sort of deal. Whenever the Bible uses the word that God visited people, things change, right? God visited the Israelites in Egypt and freed them from slavery. God visited the Amalekites who were hounding them, and they were obliterated. When God visits you, something's going to change. Now, in each of those two cases I just mentioned, God was visiting for very different reasons, right? The Israelites were crying out because they were being oppressed. 
the Amalekites were oppressors. However, and this is key, regardless of the initial reason for God's visit in Scripture, how he and his emissaries are received has everything to do with how the visit will go. Regardless of the reason for the visit, how he's received has everything to do with how the visit will go. You all familiar with, um, with an emissary named Jonah and the city of Nineveh, right? He was an emissary of God that was sent to Nineveh who was unbelievably wicked, yet they received him and they listened to his word and they repented. So how we receive God has everything to do with what will come next. And given these stakes, it's worth spending some time this morning looking at how one properly receives God or improperly receives God, because every single one of us encounters God, whether we realize that or not. So three points for today, all right? Point one, the reception of God. Point two, the rejection of God. And point three, keeping the feast. Now, talk with me on that, the reception of God, the rejection of God, and keeping the feast. Point one, the reception of God. I want to I ask you, you know, a rhetorical question. What do you do, what do you do when you know that you're going to receive an important guest? Right, like, like think about that. You know that this afternoon when you go home from church, somebody very important is coming to your home. What goes through your mind? What are some of the things that you do? I bet there's some common ones for us, right? Uh, cleaning might be one right? That's something that might be a good thing, welcoming them into our home. You know, and, and some of us prepare differently. Uh, my wonderful wife has a checklist when people are coming that's like four pages long to make sure that everything is just right, and that is, by the way, the right the way to do things. Um, my checklist is what? Like four items, and one of them is always inexplicably cleaning the garage. It's like, honey, we're having company. I've got to organize the garage. That's very important. Now, I've yet to have a guest actually spend time there, but I know that that's important. Um, so, so again, we prepare in different ways, but that's something that's essential to us is, is when we know a guest is coming, we want to make sure that our house is in order, and we want to make sure that the guest feels welcome and feels at home. And what we're doing by, by doing this is we're honoring them. Now, what do you do when the person coming to visit, visit isn't, you know, even say your boss or the family matriarch? but God. Well, that's kind of a situation that, we find, that Abraham finds himself in, in in our text. He's sitting at the door of his tent, and Jesus appears with two angels. And, and this sort of, you know, some people pick up on this. This kind of prefigures the Trinity. And we know it was Jesus because later in the Gospels, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's like, you know, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they were like, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? You know, but Jesus was talking about, this is who I am. I'm the one who visited Abraham in this text. And Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And rejoice might even be an understatement when you read our text. If you look at Abraham's response, he does things very quickly. In fact, quickly is mentioned five times in this very short section. He runs to greet. He drops on all fives. That's head to the ground. He invites. He refreshes. He prepares. He serves. I mean, he is on it, right? He's Johnny on the spot when, when God comes to visit. And it's also funny, there's, there's some humor in, uh, in this text. Poor Sarah has no idea this is going on, and she's sitting in the tent relaxing, right? And you can picture she's got like a good book in front of her, she's scrolling through Facebook, she's just having a nice, quiet afternoon. You know, and Abraham runs into the tent, and he's like, hey, God's here, make some cakes, let's go, I'll explain later, right? Like, let's move. And she does. 
And so they, they prepare this, this lavish feast in a hurry, and they're doing this to give God the honor that he's due. And then something really significant happens as well. Abraham takes all this lavish food, and he brings it to the very altar that he had built back in Genesis 13. In the very spot under these oaks that he had built an altar, he places the food and he worships God. Now, as a 21st century Westerner, preparing God a bunch of food might seem like kind of an odd way to worship. You know, an odd way to prepare for God when he comes to visit. I mean, does God really need to eat? Like, is he hungry? Well, no. But this is what worship has always meant. Throughout human history, even in pagan cultures, worship is sharing a meal with your God. That's what it is. I went to a local um, uh, East Asian restaurant for lunch on Thursday. Uh, they've got these great bento boxes. I commend them to you. Um, but I go in there, and they have this shelf inside this place of idols, and you can see them when you walk in. And on the shelves with idols, you will see uh, typically a plate with half an orange and a little thing of sake, right? What are they doing? They're worshiping, having a meal with their God. Even in pagan cultures, this was, this was a food offering, a type of worship. It's also why, to use a more biblical example, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 uses the words altar and table interchangeably. Now, there's a big debate about this in the Reformation I'm not going to get into, but what we have here is both an altar and the Lord's table. It's the same thing. But there's one important distinction to be made between pagan worship and faithful worship in Scripture. In pagan cultures, you had a meal with these gods because you wanted something from them. We talked about gifts a few weeks ago. They wanted a quid pro quo, right? It's like, hey, if I give you this thing and take care of you, will you take care of me back? That was the idea. And there was also, you know, if it was a malevolent spirit, it was like, well, if I give you this, will you at least just leave me alone, right? Like, like take this and go away. It's, um, what do, you call, what do you call that money, your protection money, that sort of thing? That was pagan culture worship. But in Scripture, it's very different. God was clear throughout Scripture that He doesn't need our sacrifice. He doesn't eat our food. He's actually the one that provides for us. God is the provider. He doesn't need any of it. Rather, we as His people, we needed a means by which to express our gratitude and to demonstrate our repentance and a pledge of faithfulness. In the uh, desk in my office here at the church, I've got a little, you know, pull-out drawer, and in that drawer I have one of those um, expandable file folders. You know the ones I'm talking about? There's, I feel like they have infinite space. Like, you can just keep going in those things. It's amazing. Um, and, and in that file folder, I had to get a big one because it's full of drawings from my children. My little crayon things that they make, or, you know, sometimes, again, I mentioned this the other day, sometimes I'm the hero, sometimes I'm getting beaten by the monster. We'll figure that out later. Um, but I have all these drawings, and, and you know, these kids do these as a means by which to express their love for me. Now, do I need these drawings? Like, no. But is it nice to receive those? Does it, does it bond us together? Absolutely it does. And, and since they can't afford golf clubs, you know, like, fine, you know, but I'll take your drawings and crayons. And so back to our text, God visits Abraham and he receives this act of worship. He receives this hospitality as a demonstration of Abraham's faithfulness of a demonstration of Abraham's love and devotion for the Lord. And then what God does is he blesses him. 
Now again, in Scripture, this isn't a you did for me, so I do for you. This is how loving people treat each other, right? God gives him this unbelievable gift. This, and the gift is absurd, right? I mean, they are… The Bible is not polite, by the way, about this particular thing, about how it describes poor Sarah's age. I mean, it's like, it says it three times in a row. She is old. Like, she is so old. She is like so very, very old, way past childbearing age, old. I mean, that's how it talks about Sarah. And then uh, in the New Testament, it talks about Abraham's being, was it saying in Hebrews? I think it was like, he was as good as dead. That's how old Abraham was. I think that's the exact phrasing they use. Like, not a polite way to do it, right? We, would, we might say seasoned or like a, a veteran of life, right? Um, but what's amazing about that is, is it just shows the graciousness of God's gift. You know, God's gift is a, is, is a son. And not only is it a son, but it's a son who's going to be the first in a line of God's people that he's made particularly for himself. It's a continuation of the line. It's a bringing in. And through this son, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It's a gift beyond imagining. It's actually absurd which is one of the reasons that Sarah laughs, right? What do you do when something's just so unbelievable that you can't even imagine that you received it? What's your response? Well, you can just laugh because it's so lavish and so absurd. And, and, and so what you have here is this perfect picture of what it is when God comes to visit and to receive him with love and excitement, to prepare for him as he comes in, to have this mutual gift-giving, this exchange, this expression of love for each other. But there's another side of this coin, isn't there? What happens when God visits the unprepared and the faithless? What happens when God visits the unprepared and the faithless? Which brings us to our second point, the rejection of God. Now, one way to think about this, um, and someone mentioned this at Adult Forum, and I thought this was really funny, so I'm, I'm shoehorning it in today. But they said, you know, they said that they've been watching a lot of, um, it was uh, Father Joyce, they've been watching a lot of, uh, what is it, uh, Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay, or Kitchen Nightmares, you know, when he comes in. You're you familiar with this, this sort of thing? Uh, and he comes in, and, you know, typically the place he's going into is a mess, and he loses his mind. And I'm not saying God loses his mind, by the way. I was like, it's not, not exactly a parallel. But, but, you know, like, it's like change, fix, you could kill somebody, this is raw food, get your house in order, let's go. And I'm sure that there's one day where Gordon Ramsay would love to come to a clean kitchen and say, like, this is perfect. This is excellent. This is exactly what I wanted to have happen. But that's not always the case. And we see that in this juxtaposition with, uh, with Sodom, right? Which brings us to our second point, the rejection of God. As the Lord is preparing to leave Abraham, he tells him that he is going to visit Sodom because there is an outcry against its people for their wickedness. And when his emissaries, the two angels, show up, wickedness is exactly what they find, isn't it? The people of Sodom, first of all, they're so spiritually blind that they don't even recognize the visitors for what they are, for who they are. They are so inhospitable that rather than welcome and honor and prepare for them, they demand to have their way with them, to know them in the biblical sense. And by the way, this is what cements Sodom's reputation in Scripture as the city that does not welcome God or his emissaries, the city that is the rejecting city. Did you hear in our gospel today? You saw how I added that extra part at the end? It's, it's part of our gospel. The reason I did so is because Jesus uses this pattern of Sodom, right? He, says, he sends his disciples out, and he says, those cities that don't receive you, that reject you, shake the dust off your feet. It will be more bearable for 
on the day of judgment for them than it was for what? For, for what city? Sodom, right? The rejecting city, those who don't receive God. Unrepentant even in the face of God's uh, visitation, it's not a good idea. Now, I don't know if you can identify with this in, in, in your own lives. Have you ever shown up somewhere where maybe you were even invited, but you weren't well-received? Has anybody ever been in that boat? You showed up to some place, and you were not well-received. Some, some of these places can seem like a trap, right? Like they bring you over, but they really just want something from you, right? Or want to corner you in a political conversation or something else like that. And it's like, something's changed here. This isn't what I signed up for. Now, sometimes we go to a place where people have been, they might have invited us, but they're very dismissive of us, right? Maybe they find us to be a burden. Or uh, what might be worse, they're only there to, you know, wheedle something out of us. But if you've been in that situation, you know that this isn't the stuff of loving relationships, is it? This isn't the stuff that, the type of behavior that leads to gifts or to grace, but to judgment. And I know some of us aren't a fan of the, the Baptist-style sermons of hellfire and brimstone, right? But that's going to be kind of hard to avoid when it comes to Sodom, because something very particular happens to that city. And, and, and this judgment that comes comes to, to any in Scripture who encounter the Lord without repentance and faithful hearts, those who are left instead to face the consequences of their own actions. You see, whether we receive the Lord and His people as family or treat Him as strangers has everything to do with judgment. We see even this in Matthew 25, right, when Jesus is judging the sheep and the goats. And what does He say? That people come to Him and they say, Lord, you know, what about me? And He's like, I never knew you. You know, you, you didn't welcome, you didn't treat well, you didn't show hospitality to. I never, I never even knew you. You're a stranger to me. Which brings us to our third and final point, <clears throat> keeping the feast. So what does that have to do with us and why we're gathered here this morning? Well, in a few minutes, we're going to prepare the altar, which is the Lord's table. And we're going to invite His presence in the act of communing with our God, of eating with our God, the act of worship. And maybe you've never thought about communion that way, but what we're about to do in, in the offertory is an act of hospitality. And God gives us this. Remember, we're talking about the sacraments this series, right? These, the, the, these, these wonderful sacraments, which are outward and visible signs, right, of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us physical things to worship Him with. And so we're about to have a physical meal, in communion with our God. And so as we prepare to offer him, to bring him into this place, as we prepare to act hospitably towards our God, there's a few things that we do. First, we clean our house. In Scripture, this is an examination of conscience. Our liturgy is going to bring us into the confession of sins to make sure that our hearts are right with God. We get to confess our sins. We get to see if there's any wrong way in us that would reject God, that would not discern His presence, that would either be dismissive of Him or even use God for our purposes. And we do this, as St. Paul says, so that we don't drink, eat and drink judgment on ourselves. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once our house is in order, what do we do? Well, we welcome the presence of the Lord. We welcome Him to the feast. And while we might be providing the stuff of bread and wine, in fact, in old liturgy, uh, the people would actually make bread and, and bring wine from their homes and bring it up as a way of offering the bread and wine and bringing it to the Lord. But while we might have the physical stuff, it is Christ who feeds us 
with his own body and blood, with himself. And I don't want us, as we prepare for this, to, to miss the gift of grace that is in receiving the sacrament of God. This is how he cleanses us. This is how he helps us to remain faithful to him. This is how he blesses us. This is how we commune with him. You know, so much of our days are these little gifts of God that he continues to provide for us. And that's something that God loves to do, right? He is our, I mean, you talk about fatherhood. You know, Jesus says this in the Gospels. He, you know, like, if even you fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father who desires to give you good gifts? And so, as we come to the table, I'd like us to prepare our hearts to be, to be aware of how we are receiving God, and then to look forward to bringing that hospitality out into the world around us. Because as Jesus specifically says, how you treat others, how you receive others is how you receive me. So we come to the table today to be filled with God's grace, to offer ourselves to him, and to take that grace out into the world, expanding the scope and size of this table of hospitality, bringing it out into the world around us, and inviting people to eat with us, and bringing the Lord to them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are the God who desires to dine with your people, that you invite us to your table in your very presence. God, that you desire to have a relationship with us that cleanses us from our unrighteousness, that gives us the gifts of your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that we would not approach your table in any manner that would dishonor you. That we would not be presumptuous, Lord, that we would not... uh, come to you in such a manner, Lord, that would be disrespectful to you, but that we would do a thorough examination of ourselves, that we would receive you in, that we would welcome you to a clean house and to a glad heart. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.